All right, so the, hey, Cassandra, how are you doing? <laughs> You're welcome. We are going to talk about a topic this morning that, yes, Roland. Turkey and, yeah, yes. Yes, and thank thank God he was. So he's in Turkey. He's back in Turkey. Okay. Okay. So Roland wanted to let anybody know who knows Rick, who may not have heard, uh, Rick lives in Turkey, but he wasn't in Turkey when the earthquake happened. He was in Spain, so he's safe. But he uh, uh, is back in Turkey now, and I'm sure. He's got friends and loved ones over there that were affected by this. and So you can remember Rick in your prayers. So the topic we're going to talk about this morning, <clears throat> you hear about it so much from Christians. You hear Christians talk about this topic quite a lot. Some talk about it almost to the point to where it's not, you don't have to define it anymore, this topic, that it's just understood. Everybody just sort of understands what it means. But I'm convinced, especially when you look at what Scripture says about this topic, that we don't have quite the same perspective on this topic as Scripture does. When we say we want to obey God's will, I want to know what God's will is in my life, a lot of times we're using that as shorthand for, I don't know, faith maybe, or, or, or something else in our lives, how to live a Christian life, instead of what Scripture really means when it's talking about God's will. So we're going to take a look at that. In fact, the more I thought about this lesson this week, the more I realized I'm going to do my best to get through my notes today in this lesson, but I want to go next week in more into detail without the historical references, just talking about what is God's will? How can we make God's will happen in our lives? And get very specific, use some specific examples so that we can see this is where the rubber hits the road. This is what it looks like when we say God's will is being done in my life. We'll begin with our uh, scripture that we always begin with, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So when we talk about knowing God's will, what I'd like to do this morning is offer two non-examples of God's will, like uh, examples of people who thought they were doing God's will, but it turns out they really weren't. 
and that will help us better understand maybe what it is and what it looks like when people do obey God's will. Now, I'm going to read a passage to you. I'm, not, I'm just going to read the last sentence of this passage. I'm not even going to give you the passage yet. Okay, this is a little tease. Because I want you to be set up for the rest of the passage. So, so just kind of sit back and listen and believe that I'm reading the scripture properly. But I'll give you the reference in just a minute. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good pleasing and perfect will. Now in thinking, my imagination does stuff like this all the time, but in thinking about that last sentence of this passage, and it's a passage we've heard many times, I've used it many times in this class, it occurred to me, if we just had that scrap of paper, and just it, that single sentence was on it, and that's all we had from the book of Romans, and we knew it was from Paul, we knew it was inspired, but it just said, then you will know what God's will is. You'll be able to test it and approve it, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Can you imagine the scholars throughout history speculating on what do you think He meant? What do you think He said right before that? Maybe prayer. Through prayer we would know God's will. Or, or maybe reading God's Word. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's what He was talking about. Well, what was he talking about? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Turn to Romans chapter 12, and this is verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. For some of you, your Bible will probably just open naturally to that page because it's referenced so often in Scripture, in sermons and lessons. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So how did Paul say we would understand what God's will is? What did he say here? What do we have to do? Give yourself away. Sacrifice. Yeah. Okay. And did you notice that it's got two parts here? One of them is, you might say, active, and the other is passive. In other words, one thing is something that we do, and the other thing is something that God does for us. The first part is we have to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And when he says bodies, he means every part of yourself, your your body, your mind, your worries, your priorities, things that scare you. Okay? Offer that as a living sacrifice. God, I want to have your priorities. I want to see the, way, the world the way you see it. I don't want to fear anything in the world. I want to fear you. And so that becomes then the sacrifice that we offer. And once we do that, God does his part. He actually gives you a new mind. And that shouldn't surprise us. He promised that that would happen 
Somebody turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. And when you're there, raise your hand and I'll tell you what verses to go to. Jeremiah chapter 31. Somebody else turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Who has one of them? Okay, Cassandra, which one do you have? It's, oh, I lost it. 33 through 34. Here's the microphone. Yeah, well, people online. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you've got Ezekiel, so could you hand the microphone when you get up okay. to her? You want me to read it now? Yeah, uh, your verses are 26 and 27, so go ahead, Cassandra. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. All right. And then Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. If I were to say right now, uh, don't think of popcorn popping. (laughs) What's the first thing you think of? I mean, you smell it, you hear it, you see it. Okay, it, it is so hard for us to control our thoughts. And when people read the Sermon on the Mount and they see Jesus saying, well, you know, they say if you commit adultery, it's a sin. But I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, it's a sin. People say, there's no way I can do that. And they're right. There's no way you can do that. You have to have a new heart. You have to have a new mind. God will give you the ability to change the way you look at the world. He will give you the ability to obey His law. This is what was promised. So it uses the word heart. That means yourself. He will give you a new self. That's really what that's talking about. Everything you think, you feel, all of that. And so when we talk about God's will, I want to do God's will. I want His will to be done in my life. That's what we're really saying. That's, that's what we mean, is we want what God wants to happen to be the thing that happens in our lives. We want to obey what God said. That's God's will. That's what we mean when we say that. So the first non-example we're going to take a look at is David in Scripture. And we're going to be in chapter 7. I'm going to jump around quite a bit, but it's mainly going to be 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. How many of you have ever smelled a cedar chest? Uh, okay, and there are actually some cedar closets. I don't know if they still make cedar closets, but um, that they're pretty strong. I cannot imagine a palace of cedar. I can. That'd, that'd be a little much for my senses. 
But David lived in a palace of cedar. Now, don't picture Walt Disney when you're picturing his palace, okay? It's, it's a big room, maybe half the size or a quarter of the size of this room. And uh, that's where all the business of a king happens. And then there would be small rooms around it, maybe some upstairs rooms. But that's a palace. And to the people who live in that time, that's a great sign of wealth. And wealth at that time was also a great sign of God's favor. God had smiled upon David He had blessed David with great wealth. He had blessed him with secure borders. He had blessed him on all sides. And David, who probably didn't have a moth problem (laughs) because his palace was made of cedar, 1 Samuel 13, 14 describes David as a man after God's own heart. I believe that's a good description of what obeying God's will in your life is. If someone can describe you as a person after God's own heart, then you're walking with God in step, in harmony. Okay, The two of you are walking through life together. And what He tells you to do, you do. What He tells you to say, you say. So David was a man after God's heart. In Acts 13.22, Paul explains to the Pisidian Jews exactly what that means by a man after God's own heart. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. Now, David was obedient to God. And here, as he's in his nice palace, he's thinking of God. I mean, he's, he's wealthy, and yet still his mind turns back to his Lord. Jesus told his followers, it's almost impossible for a rich man to get to heaven. It, it's not impossible, because God can do it. And I believe here we have an example of God blessing a rich man because he's on his way to heaven. Okay, So it's not impossible for God, but... It's virtually impossible in that in history, wealth usually corrupts. And it takes away your need for God, your felt need for God. So David is sitting here in the palace. He's looking around thinking, man, I have got it good. And this is not the house I grew up in. And I've really come a long way. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. He's out there in a tent. He's out there. In the tabernacle. Why? That's a little off. How can I enjoy the luxuries of this palace while God has to sit in a stinking tent? And it's an old tent, too. Well, this rings of humility. It shows his gratitude to God. The world would look at this and say, good idea, David. That's, he's a good guy. You know, David really is a man after God's own heart. David had an advisor, Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet spoke for God to David. And Nathan the prophet said, that's a good idea, David. (laughs) You go and do that. Verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. There was only one person that they hadn't asked. (laughs) That's God himself. 
And so that night, verses 4 through 7, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. <clears throat> I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to go into theory land here, okay? So keep this in mind. What I'm about to tell you here in a minute uh, is my theory. It's not scripture per se. Exodus 26, verse 1, that's where you start reading about the design for the tabernacle. And incidentally, if you're not sure what the difference is between tabernacle and temple, those are kind of Christianese words. They get thrown around a lot but not defined. The tabernacle was a temporary tent. Now don't picture pup tent, picture circus tent. Okay, it's, it was huge. But it was designed, well first of all, why did God tell them to make it a tent? Why a tent, not a building? So they can move with them, portable, it's a mash unit type thing, you know, you got to be able to pack up and go. Why did they need to have a portable place of worship? Right. Right. They were in the wilderness when they got the word, build a tabernacle. And they weren't in one spot in the wilderness. God had them move around. There's an exact itinerary, in fact, in Scripture that tells you which place they went and how long they stayed. But God said, make it portable. All right? So that's the tabernacle. The temple is the permanent fixed building that was built. Incidentally, how many, how many temples were there? There was only one tabernacle. How many temples were there? Temples on earth, not temples of prophecy, temples in heaven, things like that. How many temples on earth? Three, possibly four. It depends on how you look at one of them. There was Solomon's temple. Okay, That's the one who actually built the temple that David's dreaming of here, because uh, he was king when it was built. Then that was destroyed when the Babylonians came in and took Israel into captivity. They destroyed Solomon's temple. When Israel came back from captivity, they built a new temple, and the king at the time was Zerubbabel. And so he's the one that rebuilt the uh, temple of praise. I, I, I sometimes sing that one wherever we're singing that song. Um, I, I went way off on a tangent there. <laughs> like King David who rebuilt the kingdom of the temple of praise. Well, it wasn't. It was Zerubbabel, but okay, that's silly. Uh, but Zerubbabel built this second temple. So that's temple number two. The third temple on earth is called Herod's temple because he was the king when it was built. But he didn't start from scratch. He took the smallish temple that Zerubbabel had built and expanded it, but he did it in such a huge, monumental way. I mean, he, he told people, I want the Roman Empire to think of 
Israel as the pearl in the whole oyster, okay? And so Herod was a lot of things. He was evil. He killed half his family. He killed babies. He was a mean guy, but he was a good builder. You have to give him that. Archaeologists credit him as one of the best designers or engineers, thinking people in, in history. So when you look at an aerial map in, in back in the back of your Bible, the map of Jerusalem, here's Jerusalem and here's the Temple Mount. Now, it's not a building that's a fifth the size of the city. Don't picture the whole thing being one building. It's not like the Pentagon or something. But we're talking several football fields area of concrete and flat surface. And you kind of go upstairs as you go further into the temple until finally the temple proper, which is in the very center, and only Jews are allowed there, only male Jews, and only priests once you're in the interior part, and then only the high priest once a year when you're in the Holy of Holies. But you keep going up steps to go to these different places. Okay, it was monumental. It was a vast thing, especially if you live in the first century. Well, that was called Herod's Temple. But because he wasn't starting from scratch, some people say, well, that's really still the second temple. That's really Zerubbabel's temple. I would argue he did so much, you'd have to call it a new temple. I, I would say that's the third temple. So what's the fourth temple on earth? That's it. We're looking at it right here. We are the temple, the fourth temple, the temple of, of God here on earth. Okay, so <clears throat> in fact, you could argue that there were two tabernacles on earth. There was the tabernacle tent that God designed in the Old Testament. And then John tells us when Jesus came, he tabernacled among us. So he was the second tabernacle. Okay, so we've got those temples, the buildings, okay? In Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, we read this. Make this tabernacle, the tent, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Who is talking there? This is the safe answer, the one that you ask kids in a class, and they always say this answer, and they're right. God, yeah, that's it. God is speaking here, all right? Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God is talking. That means God designed the tabernacle. Now, here's where I kind of go four-wheeling, okay? This is my theory. You don't have to accept it. If you don't agree with me, we'll both get to heaven. I may get there a little ahead of you, but that's okay. We'll, we'll both get there. No, I'm just kidding. First Chronicles verses, chapter 22, verses 2 through 5. This is talking about Solomon's temple. Okay? And we read how David prepared for it. David gave orders to assemble the foreigners residing in Israel, and from among them he appointed stonecutters to prepare dressed stone for the building of the house of God. He provided large amount of iron to make nails for the doors of the gateways and for the fittings. 
more bronze than could be weighed. He provided more cedar logs than could be counted. That's a lot of cedar logs. And uh, for the Sidonians and Tyrians had brought large numbers of them to David. David said, my son Solomon is young and experienced. The house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So who designed the temple that Solomon built? David. Yeah, that's not the safe answer. You can't say God there. Because David, clearly, he prepared for it. He, he laid it out. He designed it. And now, you might argue David was inspired by God. And again, I'm not going to argue with that. Personally, I don't believe he was inspired to uh, design this temple. I believe that Scripture is telling us David designed Solomon's temple And I'm not going to take the time to discuss Zerubbabel's temple, but you can read about it in Ezra. But the fact is that Scripture clearly says that God designed the tabernacle and men designed the temples, the buildings, okay, the the mortar and brick structures. Add to that the fact that God tells David... He never asked for a temple in the first place. And here's my theory. I get the impression that God never intended for Israel to have a physical temple. Now, again, that's my theory, and I know that's out there. I know that's kind of going out on a limb a little bit there. Uh, I understand that. Daring thing to say, maybe. And I may be flat out wrong about that. I'll admit that up front. But just think about it for a minute. How would the history of Israel have been with God relating to Israel if Israel, if David had said, you know what, God, you did never ask for a temple, so I won't build you one. I'll just let you stay in a tabernacle. And they never built a temple. Would God have interacted any differently with Israel? I don't think he would have. I don't think you can make that argument. I don't think that the temple made any difference at all in how God dealt with his people. It probably, uh, the the tabernacle probably would have been destroyed when Babylon came in. Um, Instead of destroying the temple, they would have destroyed the tent. They may have ignored it. It, It's just an old rugged tent, you know, who, who needs to bother about that? But the tabernacle was designed by God And it was designed to be temporary. Even in the course of history, he intended for the tabernacle to be temporary because it would eventually be replaced, or maybe a better word would be fulfilled, in the new temple that God builds in his people. And since we've been grafted into the nation of Israel, we are part of that temple of God that he has built on earth. Now, I want you to hear me say something very clearly. I don't believe that it was God's will to have a temple, but God blessed the temple. He worked through the temple. Solomon, in his big prayer in Scripture, that when, when you know the, the ribbon cutting of the new temple, he asked God 
to answer people's prayers when they would go to the temple, turn to the temple and pray for rain or pray for relief from the enemies. And God answered that prayer. He honored that prayer. His presence filled the temple. So God works even when his people don't do things totally according to his plan. You know why? Because God's never had any other kind of people to deal with than people who don't get his plan perfectly. There was only one person in history who only did the things God told him to do and only said the things that God told him to say, and that's Jesus. The rest of us improvise. We add. We, we embellish a bit. Okay? I don't think it was ever God's plan to have the hierarchy of leadership in the church that we see like, starting in the Catholic Church by the 4th century. This was pretty well set up. I don't think he meant for that to happen. But I believe he's blessed that hierarchy. I believe he's worked through that hierarchy structure. I don't think this was ever part of God's original plan. A big building. okay? Necessarily, when I mean, you think about where did Jesus meet with his followers? By a lake? By the beach? Out in a field? Okay, sometimes in, in the uh, synagogue, that's another Christianese word, it's a mini temple. Think of it as a mini temple, you know, the Jewish church building. But that's the kind of setup Jesus had. Some, it, it didn't matter, like he told the Samaritan woman, it doesn't matter where you worship God because God will be in you. And so if you meet in your living room with other Christians, know that God is in you and he is working through you. And the fastest growing, at least this was 10 years ago, I don't know if it still is, but the fastest growing Christian movement in California is not a movement that meets in a big building. It's small groups of people who get together for Bible study and worship on Sunday mornings in laundromats. And the others kind of who are there to wash clothes, they, they hear what's going on. And they really don't want to do church, but they can handle that. And so they kind of get drawn into that week after week when they go do their laundry. They look forward to singing those songs with them. They begin picking it up. So that's, that's one of the fastest growing movements right now in America. I'm not saying that this is bad. Okay, God has blessed this. He is here with us this morning. His presence fills this building, but not because this building is a holy place. It's because this building is filled with holy people, and that's why he's here. Okay, so I, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying if we deviate from God's will, he won't work through it. I'm saying if we deviate from God's will, he'll work through it, but, and, and he'll bless it, but that was not really his will from the start. Okay, So I, I just want you to make sure you hear that, that caveat. Um, so with our current temple, the one that God built, this group of people here, we have so often gone off script 
when it goes, comes down to doing God's will, following God's plan. I don't, uh, oh, I already said that. When we get together, if, if the church building burned down tonight, okay, and next week we had to start meeting in our houses, God would still be there. He would still honor that. I think, in fact, it would get rid of some of the politics that kind of grow up around some of the structures that we add to God's very simple plan. But, nevertheless, God's grace is just so relentless that He's willing to work through our alterations. So, building up to the year 1000, last week I talked about um, how there was a widespread panic among people in Europe that Jesus was coming back. It was the end of the millennium. Jesus said he's going to come back and he's going to be on a horse. And oh my goodness, what does that mean for us? We need to repent. We need to fall on our knees. Well, they got the second part right. We do need to do that. But really what, uh, what was happening with this panic was I'm scared of change. I don't want things to be different. Yeah, things could be better than they are right now, but uh, I'm familiar with this. If Jesus is, comes back and he's king, I'm uncomfortable with that because I don't know what that means. I don't know how to interact with that. And so even today, you have Christians who react to the idea of Jesus coming back with a little bit of anxiety and, and worry that, well, I, I kind of like my air conditioning. I kind of like going to Netflix and is there going to be Netflix in heaven? I mean, how are we going to survive without some of these niceties that we've gotten used to? Trust me when you, I mean, Terry likes to say, I'm going to spend the first thousand years with my mouth open because you're just going to be in the presence of awesome. And I don't use that word for anything except God, but we will be in the presence of God. So, when the year 1000 came, and there was no trumpets in the sky, at least that we have record of, and the year 1001 came and passed, and then the next year, and the next decade, and nothing was happening, people kind of relaxed again, and went back to their ways of doing things. People began to unrepent. Is that a word? <laughs> do, you, do you follow what I'm saying? They, they fell on their knees at the year 1000, but eh, 1010, okay, we, we've got a little ways to go, so uh, l- let's take it easy. Uh, stay up a little later on Saturday nights and maybe sleep in on Sunday mornings from time to time. Well, there was a very practical problem going on in the Roman Empire by that time. Even though it had fallen, the Roman Empire had fallen and they had moved things east to Constantinople, uh, the the capital of the empire. Okay, they moved it from Rome to Constantinople. Constantine did that. Even though that had happened, uh, there was still this idea of we are part of Christendom. We are part of the, the unity of brethren. There is one church, and that church is God's church, and that unites us all. But it's a very practical problem because they're in a huge space, territorially, geographically, okay? 
it rivals the, the coast to coast of the United States, all right? It's, it's probably even greater than that, to be honest. So uh, when we think about the empire at that time, it's not a good idea to picture it as there was one coin for the realm, there was one language spoken amongst the people. No, no, it, was a, it had fallen into pockets of civilization in different cities. And that raised the question. I mean, Charlemagne, back in 800, had done his best to unite everybody. But by the year 1000, that was once upon a time. That, that didn't, that's not the state of affairs now that we're in the year 1000. The state of the union today is not union. It's disunion. It's the state of the disunion. So people no longer took for granted that the person who led the church in Rome spoke for the entire realm. I mean, he's never been to our little community. He's never going to come to our little community. Our community doesn't even speak that language. We don't know much. We don't even know what he looks like. Most of us don't even know his name. Why should we fall back to honoring him when the capital is in Constantinople. It's not even in Rome anymore. And there's a church leader in Constantinople called the Patriarch. Maybe we should turn to him. Come to think of it, Athens, they have a church leader. Alexandria, Corinth, all these places. I don't know if Corinth still had a church, honestly, by that time. But there were, there were uh, in, in the major cities, there were church leaders who were, that's who you would go to if you had problems in your area. And so with those kinds of setups, people began to say, maybe the East and the West should just split formally for the rest of time. Because in the West, it was Latin. In the East, it's Greek. In the West, we're, we're all about Rome. In the East, we're all about Constantinople. Maybe we've come to a parting of the ways. And by 1054, that's exactly what happened. It's called the East-West Schism. schism. They, they split. And the East no longer turned to the Pope in Rome for answers. They turned to the Patriarch in Constantinople. Well, <clears throat> I don't think that was ever part of God's will, that the church would split like that. I don't think it was ever part of His will that the church would be so political as they were at that time. But officially, they split. Now, culturally, they had been divided for quite some time. Um, I'm going to come back to feudalism next week because I'm going to get to some questions, and I want to hear from you. Uh, we've got the microphone out there, so we're ready to give it to whoever can help us out here. How can we know today if we're doing God's will? if we're obeying God's will. So, thank you, Terry. Somebody want to offer a bit of ignorance there for that? You don't have to be 100% right to answer. <laughs> you can be partly wrong. I think it's okay. Okay, to me, it's as simple as reading the Word. And what I mean by that is that in 1 Thessalonians 4... 
It is God's will that you be sanctified. And that's a big word, but he pretty well fleshes it out and tells us that we're supposed to live a certain way. And then later on, he'll tell us that it is God's will that you give thanks in every circumstance. So I think those are the two things that we need to um, enthrone as far as being the definition of God's will. Okay. Are we living a sanctified life? Are we being grateful in every circumstance? Good, good. I think it's First John where it says, live holy lives worthy of the calling you've been given. All right, other ideas. How do we know we're following God's will? Christ said, love God and love each other. Good. With all of our hearts. And so that sums up mind. what? The whole thing. It sums up everything. So you want it simple? You cannot get any simpler than that. Love God, love your neighbor. And if you can obey that, you are fulfilling your purpose on this earth. At the very end of Ecclesiastes, some people think it was written by somebody other than King Solomon. doesn't matter. It was written by God. The, he, he gives us the meaning of life. You hear about people saying, what's the meaning of life? Oh, I wish I knew what that was. Well, it's given to us in the very end of Ecclesiastes. Here is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. That's really what fear God means. It means to keep His commandments. So, what are His commandments? And she just said, love God, love each other. Okay? So, that's our purpose on this earth. Others? I think we need to distill love God down a little bit more. We, we need to what? I'm sorry. To distill that down a little bit more. That's pretty big. Love, love God. God. What does that mean? Jesus mean? said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Good. That's the way we show him we love him. Right, right. Yeah. That, and I'm glad you said that because so often we speak in shorthand and we leave it there. But it's good to define these things from time to time. What does it mean to, to love God? It means your faith has feet. <laughs> You've got to walk out what you believe. All right, others. Cassandra. You just said you have to walk out what you believe. Mm -hmm. I think you first step is to make sure what you believe and you have to know the word and I, I keep you know since you asked this question I'm like well yeah you check with the scriptures but also it like the it has to be in you and when you're sitting there thinking like uh, is this a good thing is this something God would want me to do for me if I have a scripture pop into my head for it or a scripture pop in my head against it mm -hmm. then that lets me know <laughs> that's good that's good because the Spirit uses that new mind that he, God gave us. Thank you. That's the second bell. We will be done for today and pick it up next week. And we'll, we'll pick up right on my notes because I put a mark on it. <laughs>